The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to October's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we're going to cover IFA and Syria shows. We're also going to look in-depth at 3D technology, discuss the recent Oppo news. I'm also going to take a look at Blu-ray player performance at this moment in time. And joining me, as always, on the Home Cinema Podcast, we have Neil Davidson from Genesis Technologies. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. Also joining us is AV Forum's hardware reviewer, David McKenzie. Hi, David. Hi, Phil. And uh, wrapping up our panel this month is uh, Graham Goodburn. Hi, Graham. Hi, Phil. Okay, so uh, we're going to kick off by looking at some of the things that have been happening over the uh, last two months when we've been off air. It has been uh, the show season. And uh, the first show was IFA in Berlin, which myself and David went along to. Uh, the IFA show is the largest in Europe and arguably the largest on the planet and it hosts most of the major manufacturers now the first major manufacturer and the one who was making the most amount of noise about new technology was Panasonic and they were pushing their 3D TV their full high definition 3D TV with James Cameron's avatar Uh, so I'm going to go to David first David, what were your thoughts on before going at the show on 3D TV, and did they change after seeing what you saw? Um, I think they changed a bit, but none of it was uh, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, with this, with with 3D, to be to be brutally honest, with me, it's become more of a case of me beginning to tolerate the technology and beginning to think, oh, okay, cool, I, I can see how that would work, rather than you know me loving it as soon as I first saw it, which was the case with HDTV, you know, the last uh, the last big evolution. And one of the things I picked up on was the Avatar trailer, which we were shown in full HD. And uh, it was very subtle in the way it was done. And I read a few reports afterwards saying that um, people were underwhelmed. But I thought that that's how 3D really should be done, where it a little bit underhand and, and not as in your face. I think that's the biggest problem with the technology. I mean, I think people go in there and they, they, they expect right now at least to see, you know, arrows flying out the screen and stuff like that. So like you say, when they see something done subtly, the the, the first uh, reaction is probably going to be disappointment. And uh, it, it didn't help um, either. That I mean, Panasonic, they played it after um, a lot of... Uh, 3D video camera generated content so they had you know full um, 60 frames per second uh, sporting events with you know like I mean, y- y- can you remember better than I can it was like uh, it you know um, skiers flying out of the camera snow flying out of the viewer and stuff like that so when, when you when you watch you know something done by a Hollywood director who's uh, uh, you know got years of experience of being subtle with uh, camera work and the like uh, after that I, I guess it's the only natural reaction yeah, the, the other footage, just for reference for the listeners, was uh, the Beijing Olympics, the opening ceremony. Uh, there was a few shots of different sports uh, and an F1 car going around a race circuit before we came to Avatar. Now, I'm going to move over to the other guys. Uh, guys, start with Neil. What's your experience with 3D and uh, uh, what's your thoughts on, on what Panasonic are trying to do by trying to standardise the system and push a full 3D uh, HD system? Well, several questions there, Phil. First of all, um, we've been doing some demos already of 3D. We have several 3D-ready products that that we've been working with. Um, At this minute in time, all of the 3D material that we have has to be played off a a special custom server. Um, So from that point of view, we're 
obviously pretty happy that someone is taking the lead to make a, a standardized 3D system. Um, doesn't really matter to me, to be honest with you, who it is who's making that. Um, I'm perfectly happy with what Panasonic are doing, and if everyone agrees, then I think it can actually speed along the process of 3D adoption. Uh, and then the final thing is the content. Um, one of the the coolest things that I've seen done with 3D so far was, in fact, a nature documentary, um, and it was filmed with cameras mounted on top of a Jeep, uh, and it looks absolutely spectacular, really just a wonderful use of the technology to really draw you into the into the scenes. It's like an African safari type thing. And for for me, when you see that, you forget about all the gimmicks and all this funny stuff that you just mentioned about arrows flying out of the screen. And you just get this sense of of depth and of involvement in the footage. And for me, that's that's where we're going to be going in the future. It's as simple as that. Phil, I remember saying to you at, um, at EVA after seeing that, for me, the most obvious application of the 3D stuff was kind of what Neil was saying there. It's for the kind of wish you were here type programming. The the Olympics was the example Panasonic had. But um, more so than, uh, you know, Hollywood feature films, I thought the most obvious application was uh, event programming. Things where you'd, you'd like to be there in the moment and really experience it, but you can't be. I get what you're saying there, David. And one of the things that I did pick up on the show floor, I don't know if you other guys have seen it, um, is actual video gaming in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a more natural market for that technology than, than maybe feature films are. I'll just say uh, we've played games on a six-meter screen in 3D, so <laughs> we agree. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the games for me was the first, wow, yeah, I can really see that moment. Yeah, I must admit, from my point of view... I prefer the more subtle approach to 3D. I mean, most of us have all been to Disney or whatever and saw Captain EO and Honey, I Shrunk the Audience and things like that. And for the five or ten minutes that those sort of things run for, yeah, spears coming out of the the front of the auditorium and snakes biting your heads off and things like this, it's all very impressive. But I don't know whether it's just me, but I would find that rather wearing if I was sitting through a two-hour movie where the director insisted on throwing things at me every couple of minutes. So I thought James Cameron's Avatar was actually... um, a, a, you know, a, a good movie done properly without actually going mad on the, on the effects. So it just gave you a feeling of being there. So you enjoy the movie. Um, gaming, you know, PlayStation games, etc., etc., in 3D are the obvious thing. Um, and a few people say they quite like to watch the F1 and the footy in 3D as well. But I'm I'm not so sure about those. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time. Um, people for a demo. Yeah, naturally show off and give the audience the thrills and what the thing can do. But uh, you know, the more subtle approach is probably going to win more friends in the long term. And we'll see how it goes. Well, last December I was invited along to uh, uh, Sky TV, uh, their studios, and they showed us what they were working on, a, a delivery system for 3D using your standard HD box. And they were using a, a polarising uh, screen and polarised glasses to do that effect and it was very very jarring the, the photography that were showing you some some of the shots looked absolutely sublime yet the majority of it just looked a little bit odd um, everything was in focus from the front of the screen to the back of the screen if you know what I mean uh, there was no sense of uh, the actual depth and stuff but 
as the years gone on, I think personally, from what I've seen from demonstrations, the technology has improved in terms of how they're maybe now looking at how they shoot something. And I think the the Avatar footage was a perfect example of it done subtly. So do you mm. think it's a case of the the production guys, the, the cameramen that are used to using uh, traditional lenses and so on, getting used to the fact that they're now shooting for 3D? Yeah, I mean, even um, the big IMAX stuff that they did in 3D, some of those programs or some of those films were done very well you know especially the nature ones and even the space one was done very well but some of the others like you know the dinosaur one that was knocking about and things like that it's all too predictable that you're going to get a t-rex trying to bite your head off but uh, you know the space one i was especially taken with and that was a couple of years ago now and um, they also did a, a nature one and i'm with neil that's exactly the sort of thing that you'd expect 3d to bring you you know that wish you were here thing and, um, you know, I can't see anybody not being impressed by that. And to, to go away from something like, um, you know, a big safari in 3D, underwhelmed, would um, surprise me. Now, Neil, it was interesting that you mentioned uh, that you were gaming on a six-metre screen. So do you think that the screen size has quite an impact on, on the 3D side of things? Because personally, everything I've seen projection-wise, I've I've actually enjoyed more than looking... At stuff on say 103 inch plasma or on on the the new 50 inch and 42 inch screens, it just doesn't seem to have the same impact. Well, I, I rattled quite a few feathers, I'm sure, uh, when we were at the Cedia AGM a couple of weeks ago, and there was a, a big debate in the the custom installers about 3D. And my opinion and the point I made is that 3D simply does not work on a small screen. You need to have a really, really big screen because to work convincingly, 3D needs to fill. It really, really needs to fill your peripheral vision. Um, and what that does is it it poses quite some challenges in terms of the, the layout of the rooms and so on. Uh, and truthfully, we're still working. Uh, whilst the on the, the filming side, the technical guys, the cameramen, are still working out how to film it in the best way. We on the, the installation and, and setup side are still working out how best to integrate this into an environment to give people the best view. But the one thing that for me is absolutely obviously clear already is that there is simply no way that it works properly on such a small screen as a 42 inch. Um, even if you sit right up close to it, it's just not at all convincing. Um, it really needs that, that, that big feel. Um, and a big projection screen, really big projection screen. So by taking what you're saying there then is uh, uh, really what we should be looking at is projection technology to bring in 3D and, and not the TVs that the, all the manufacturers are pushing at the moment. It's my experience that it, it works a lot, a lot better on uh, the big screen, the big projection screen, rather than on the small scale TV Um also, I have to say, I don't particularly like the polarizing systems. Um, I much prefer the active shutter glass systems, but that's a whole different debate. Uh, just in terms of the screen size, though, there's simply no replacement for having a really big screen. easiest way of doing that, of course, is to have a projection screen. No, I think that goes for 2D as well as 3D, doesn't it? In many ways. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, the question that nobody's asked is, who actually asked for this? 
Um, <laughs> Hollywood executives. But, which is the point I think we need to look at. I mean, I don't know of any consumers that, that have, you know, raised the issue that they want 3D and demanded 3D. It seems to have come uh, very much from Hollywood and from the manufacturers and uh, especially from the likes of, of companies like Panasonic who, at IFA, all, all they were pushing was, was this 3D thing. So do you think there's a risk of alienating the public that by, by trying to force them into a technology that maybe they don't want? Well, Jamer Panasonic actually, I think they made um, they, they, they didn't go um, around shouting about it, but they uh, they did have in their presentation at IFA that um, plasma technology was the best bet for 3D, and LCD was too slow for it. And uh, when you think of the investment they've made in plasma, that makes total sense, doesn't it? Yeah, they have a technical point as well, though. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it was the same with 2D. Um, plasma <laughs> yeah. uh, but it can remind people of it again now yeah I mean well I, I have a wry smile all over my face at the moment because uh, <laughs> it's, I've known that's always been the case it's just trying to convince people it's always been the hard bit but uh, yeah put me in front of it and let them have a look but you know I'm with Neil and big 3D presentations you know on a suitably sized projection screen is probably the best way to um, show off the technology um, a 42 inch screen of which I've seen a couple now showing 3D technology um, it's just not big enough it's simple as that you tend to get distracted by you know because it's not filling enough of your field of view and unless you sit on top of it and um, yeah, polarising systems well yeah they're so um, last year really aren't they mm. No, it's it's funny that you, you say that, Graham, because uh, if anybody wants to go and have a look at the feedback from the JVC event we had it this weekend, uh, those guys were showing a polarising screen glasses on a 42-inch screen, and quite a few of the comments there said the same type of thing, Graham, that um, because of the size of the screen, if, if they saw anything out with the edges of the screen, it kind of ruined the effect for them. Yeah, I mean, I saw it at JVC's HQ um, a few weeks back, and yeah, it's a good screen, and um, the content was chosen re- relatively tastefully, but, uh, you know, unless you're sitting three or four feet away, I did notice my eyes wandering, you know, around and looking at the walls, and occasionally it wasn't quite in focus, and you had to concentrate quite hard on it, and I just found that projection systems with shutter glasses I didn't need to concentrate that much to enjoy and you know I don't suffer from headaches and all this business and I've not suffered from the various projection things like rainbow effect and screen flicker and things like that and they don't tend to bother me but you know you you were distracted by it because it simply wasn't big enough now let's uh, wrap the 3D thing up by by looking at some of the the technical constraints uh, guys and uh, Neil, one of the things that's always distracted me within 3D demonstrations, and I think it's because I haven't been able to get hold of the remote control and maybe change <laughs> change the image slightly, but the one thing that's always got me is, is that it's far too bright and uh, I tend to see flicker and I tend to see a lot of hot spotting, um, especially with the polarising systems. Um, so from a technical point of view, uh, what should they really be looking for? And in terms of what we guys normally look for when it, in terms of image accuracy, is it going to make it more difficult for us to achieve that? Well, it, it, it shouldn't. Um, depending on the technologies involved, there is a, a requirement for more brightness. Um, I have to say I'm slightly surprised to hear uh, that you've felt the images were too bright because that, in truth, is the biggest problem. 
uh, that you have with 3D at this minute in time is getting the images bright enough. Um, a lot of people to overcome that are using, well, in the theatres, they're using silver screens with very, very high gains um, and super powerful projectors, which is, of course, a combination for terrible hotspotting. Um, in the home, we probably don't need to worry about that so much, I hope. Um, the only trick that we've got to uh, we've got to overcome, and I'm looking forward to doing some more work here, is uh, how to calibrate the display uh, for the glasses that you are wearing. Um, because although the glasses are designed to be neutral density filters, it's clear that even on the most expensive ones, there is still some colour shifting going on. Um, so I think for me, that's the that's the only real issue uh, that still needs to be overcome in terms of the quality. Um, we have some demo material that is full 1080p60 uh, in both uh, eyes. So basically dual 1080p60 streams. And I can assure you that there's <laughs> there's really no problem uh, with content like that. It looks absolutely spectacular. Um, just need to make sure we get the colour right, that's all. Well, that sounds very much like uh, Panasonic's approach with a full 1080 in each eye. Uh, David, did you see any of the issues which, which I've raised there on some of the demos we looked at? I think at JVC's project, uh, 3D projection demo, there was quite a bit of hot spotting in that, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and again, uh, JVC were using two 950s with That's right. uh, polarizing lenses and then a, a, a silver screen, Neil, which uh, is there just you what you mentioned there. Yeah. Yep. So silver screen has a very, very high gain. You can get gains up to five. Um, oh. Typically hot spotting is, is a function of the screen gain rather than from the projector. Um, it's just caused the, there's a natural increase in brightness as I'm sure you know on a projector towards the very centre of the image um, and it tends to just fade off a little bit towards the edges um, and if you have a screen that has a very high gain it, it emphasises that effect um, so you get obviously bright patches which are what hotspots are and perhaps people don't always know what a hotspot is um, so obviously if you have a very high gain screen uh, the the difference between these brightest areas and darkest areas really becomes quite obvious, um, and that's the terrible hot spotting that you're talking about. So obviously that's some of the the, the technical constraints is in there. And Neil, again with a high gain screen like that, if you're sitting off axes, that's just going to make things a little bit more difficult, isn't it? Way, way, way more difficult. Way more difficult. It's very difficult um, to to do that unless you have only two or three seats very centrally placed to control those type of things when you're talking about these extremely high-gain screens. Um, even in commercial theatres, that's that's a big implication for them, even with the wall-to-wall screens, is that you can get one side look much dimmer than the other side. And for 3D, especially if you're just using passive polarising glasses, wow, that's, it's really obvious and it's it's quite distracting, I have to say. Okay, so that's 3D. Um, just before we wrap up on, on this subject, uh, let's go around everybody. Um, do you think it's going to be a success? I'm still sitting on the fence, David. I think it's going to be a success whether we want it to be or not. Um, I mean, uh, if you look at HDTV, I mean, you, you can't buy standard FTV anymore, can you? Unless it's one of those little 19-inch LCDs. So I think really it's up to the manufacturers whether or not it's a, uh, whether or not it's a success. I think um, for um, the foreseeable future, uh, a reasonable 3D presentation at a cinema will be uh, the thing to enjoy, you know, with suitable content. Um, 
I think Sky should be concentrating on making their existing HD service better before they start rolling out 3D service, but that's just a personal thing. Um, I've got quite a big telly, so you know I'd like to see it on my my screen. But uh, EastEnders in 3D, I think it's not somehow. And uh, and Neil, um, what's your thoughts? Yeah, for me, it's very obviously going to be a success. Um, it'll just take some time. And uh, just so people know, you're showing a, a 3D projector, which has just been introduced by uh, one of the companies which you work with. And uh, what was the cost of that again? Uh, the one that we're showing next time is £92,000. So it's still, for in terms of big screen, it's still going to be uh, out of the reach of, of most consumers, isn't it? Well, I, I certainly don't have one in my living room, Phil, so... Also out of the reach of most retailers as well, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So 3, 3D was a big thing. Um, Neil, you went to Cedia US this year. Um, was it being pushed to the installers out there in, in the same way as it was being pushed to consumers? Uh, it was being pushed very heavily, although I have to confess um, that I didn't have the chance to check out every demo. Um, but for example, uh, a company like Digital Projection on their stand uh, had a 3D demo theatre with something like a five-meter screen in it um, and 30 seats, <laughs> which was basically full the whole time, uh, which should show you some of the interest that people were having in 3D. And I think pretty much all of the projector companies were talking about 3D and most of the, the flat panel companies who were there also had at least something to talk about 3D. So no. definitely a big topic over at Cedia. Now, when you're, you're talking about um, different projection manufacturers, does the, the we're going back to technical terms here again, but does the shattered glass technology work across all technologies or is it mainly uh, DLP at the moment? Um, the shattered glass technologies, um, it's difficult to say. It should, in theory, work across all technologies. Um, but what happens is that the shutters actually use LCD shutters in them. Um, and the glasses themselves have a response time. So we're back now to the response time of LCD. Uh, <laughs> you actually have to calibrate the response time of the shutter glasses uh, to the projector so, so that you don't get kind of weird effects. Um, so it's a, a whole new dimension of calibration. Uh, I haven't tried it with an LCD projector, but I would be very interested to see how you, uh, how you aligned the response time of the LCD panel in the projector with the response time of the LCD shutter glasses to avoid to avoid blurring, um, that would be the biggest concern. Um, and also greatly reduced light output because you could have such a quick flash of an image um, that you would be risking reducing the light output quite, quite a lot as well. Channel check. Left channel, right channel. Europe's number one audio-visual resource. This is theavforums.com. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. Okay, so let's move away from uh, from the 3D side of things. And uh, an, another big technology which we were expecting to be pushed at, at IFA and at Syria was uh, OLED. Um, and... There wasn't any, was there, David? There was, uh, the LG had theirs. There, there, and, was, uh, there was one and that was it. Um, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of it. Now, is this a case, uh, Neil and Graham, that somebody in Japan has decided that in the present climate, LEDs on the back burner? I would have said that was almost certainly the case. Um, 
it's not a cheap thing to make. It's going to be an expensive TV, and now's not really the time to try and ask people to spend that amount of money on a TV when they're considering not buying anything at all. Um, you know, especially in the UK, you know, people have decided to sit and wait, and uh, you know, they're not they're keeping hold of their existing TV and wait until the price of OLED comes down, which it surely will, but until they ramp up production, um, we're unlikely to see them at the sort of money that any of us were likely to uh, put our hands in our wallets for. And, Neil, do you think that OLED is, in the present climate, there's a, there's a risk that the technology might not actually ever come along? Um, well... You can go out and buy an OLED TV right now if you really want to, so I don't think we can really use that as an argument. Um, where it may struggle still is in the uh, in the mass market. Um, there's still a lot of technical difficulties to overcome with it, quite clearly, otherwise we would be seeing it a lot more. I think that it offers so many benefits, though, um, that we will start to see um, more and more of it coming online. Um, Things like the power consumption and stuff like that, they're just inescapable requirements um, that people are looking for, uh, very low power requirements, and there's no way of, of escaping that. And I think that those are, are, are things that are just going to keep driving the development of OLED. As far as I know, there isn't, a, there isn't another similar technology of similar maturity that offers similar benefits, so yeah, difficult to see what they would be working on apart from that. I think uh, everybody was thinking that with two t- 2010 being a, a World Cup year and obviously the, uh, those types of years when there's a European Cup or a, or a uh, sorry, European Championship or a World Cup, um, sales of TVs naturally go up. Um, it looks like OLED is going to miss out this time around, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's certainly a very, very valid statement. It's, um, you, we remember Sky HD boxes in the World Cup. Um, you know, until three months before the event, um, people were sort of going, well, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then with eight weeks to go, Sky couldn't actually deliver enough boxes to people that wanted them. Um, so, yeah. Oh, LED is a very good technology, and it's certainly capable of a, of a great picture. But I haven't seen an OLED um, display of fifty inches to actually pass you know, pass valid comment on. You know, the nine-inch Sony is great, but it's only nine inches. I mean, the twelve-inch mm. portable CRT looked very good. You know, <laughs> um, you know, it's, yeah, until we see it, you can't really say. But um, uh, yeah, what advantages it's going to bring for the World Cup? over a decent full HD plasma with a Sky HD box, I wouldn't like to say, but someone will stick them side by side around uh, around February, March time, no doubt. And uh, if an OLED 50 inches a couple of grand, I'm sure people will buy them, but I can't see that happening, to be honest. No, I think maybe 10 grand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, OLED, it, it's going to be a few years yet, um, and that's just basically going on the tech shows because you know if it's at the tech show, you can guarantee you're going to see it in six months. We didn't see any at IFA. Um, was there any on show at CDA this year, Neil? Um, there was one or two small ones, but nothing particularly uh, particularly new or exciting. So I guess it's going to be CES in January if if we're going to see any of the big sizes, and even then, 
you're probably going to be probably you've also you've also got the problem with um samsung with their advertising at the moment shouting led tv at everybody mm. and uh, people are assuming it's almost the same thing but of course um yeah which, which was going to be the next point which graham obviously knew where i was going by this conversation and jumped <laughs> jumped in there with led sorry <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah this was the point i was going to come on to we're, we're talking about oled and it's going to be a few years yet led now, we've got Samsung pushing it as a new technology. We've got other manufacturers being quite naughty in the way that they're advertising the technology. Now, at the end of the day, Graham, it's just a backlight change, isn't it? It's still going to have the it's LCD It's just a flaws. different method of lighting your LED screen. LCD screen, should I say. Um, uh, and the edge backlighting I have seen that use LEDs, um, it's questionable whether it's better than the cold cathodes that they used for LCDs traditionally. Now, I've seen one full backlit um, LED, LCD screen with LED backlighting across the whole panel, and that did look good, I have to admit, but it wasn't exactly cheap. And uh, you already get people saying, well, my cousin rung me up, yesterday and said oh, I've just bought a, a, the new Samsung LED TV and I said no it's just got LED backlighting what's that he says I said well look at a dark scene and look at the sides of the sides of the picture frame and he goes oh yeah what's that I said that's the LED lights my friend you know, and um, he said oh the, LC, the sharp LCD he had he said didn't do that so he didn't think it was as good and he thought it was broken and I said no that's he said but the bloke sold it to me as an LED TV and yeah. No, sir. It's not an LED TV. You have LED backlighting, and um, how do you how do you say it without sounding a little bit um, jaded in your response? You know, it's uh, difficult. Yeah, and obviously David's uh, had a few of these through now for review. Um, <laughs> how how does the technology stack up? Um, the most recent one I have actually is the Sharp um, uh, Aquas LED. And I think Sharp have um, approached it purely from a power consumption point of view. You know, they're promoting it as their Eco TV. Well, who isn't? But um, and to be honest, that was really the only thing it did right. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't the rest. It wasn't terrible, but there are better displays in you know every other aspect. So, um, I guess from the public's point of view, what they need to know is that uh, guys, it's just a new backlighting technology and. Uh, what they're buying is actually an LCD TV, and with that LCD TV comes the usual drawbacks of the LCD technology. Yep, correct. Yes. Um, it's just an LCD TV. Um, you don't get any of the any of the big benefits that people think about when we talk about OLEDs and stuff like that. So you always have some light output and so on. And even at this minute in time, uh, the the grouped local dimming LED TVs bring other problems because you then get patches of, of dark and light on the screen. Uh, so there's still a lot of work to be done on these LED TVs or LED backlit TVs we should correct the column. Yeah, it's an LCD LED TV. It's a retrofit. <laughs> it's confusing for the poor bloke that wants to go down to Curry's and buy a TV, isn't it? Mm. At the end of the day. It Absolutely, is, that we all agree on. At, at their um, quite disappointing um, conference or um, press event at IFA, they actually Samsung actually made the claim that we've led the LED TV market. And you know, I was sitting there thinking, well, okay, yeah, you're the you're the only ones lying about it. At least in that way, <laughs> David's opinions are not those of AV forums. 
Um, but in all seriousness, guys, uh, when it comes to advertising this technology, it's very easy to confuse the public. And uh, another complaint which was made to the ESA, which uh, was um, overturned and was ruled that, that there wasn't a problem, was Panasonic's uh, advertising of Neo PDP and the 600 hertz technology. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the advert of the tennis players where they hit the yeah. ball across the net. Um, that seemed to suggest that 600 hertz was actually happening with motion. Um, but as we know, guys, that's that's not how the subfield processing works. No, it isn't. And um, uh, apologies for sounding slightly jaded again, but um, you know, if I had a pound for every time you've tried to explain that to people, um, I'd be a very rich man. It okay. was an inherently. It wasn't essentially like an inherently deceptive ad, advert, was it? Though I mean, because I think the point they were making was that you know uh, plasma has the the motion resolution advantage, hence the you know the tennis player thing, and you yeah. know they they just mentioned six hundred hertz in there. Why not? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, the way they mentioned it was it was six hundred hertz frame uh, intelligent frame, which gave the suggestion that it was an mm. interpolated technology. Uh, and obviously, Sony are, are pushing the 200 hertz interpolated technology. So again, you could look at it in a cynical eye and say, "Well, all Panasonic were doing there was beating the the 200 hertz uh, advertising with their 600 hertz advertising." Mm-hmm. Graham, I'm going to give you a pound. Can you explain to uh, the AV forums? Oh, don't do that to me. Uh, oh, just, just give God. us a, a very quick. Um, technical explanation of what 600 hertz subfield is well they're just trying to um speed up at the rate that the panel will update itself with the information um it's still in the uk a 50 hertz signal and um you know you get a 50 you get so many frames a second and the gap in between them is what it is um how quickly it refreshes it's like well, it's not really like Sony's old 100 hertz technology on a CRT, but it's a similar sort of thing. They just try to get the information in that subfield done quicker so they can display it quicker. It's not filling in the gaps between the ball moving between one field and the other. It just doesn't work like that. You, you see a progressive frame, so you get the whole picture, then it builds it up and you see another whole picture. And you get, um, you know, depending on technology, you get to see that at 50 hertz or 60 hertz. Um, it's as simple as that. The rest of it, I mean, you could say it's a 1,000 hertz technology and you st- it still wouldn't be inherently smoother. It's just um, the way that the screen is updated um, just does it very quickly. And the, the question then is, if it does it too quickly, how long should the image remain in that frame before the next frame's generated? Because... You can't generate more frames than there is in the incoming source. Otherwise, your two-hour movie would be over in 90 seconds. Um, you know, your two-hour movie needs to last two hours, so the frame rate is fixed at what goes into it. How it internally processes it is entirely a different matter. But, um, yeah, if someone told me a ball would look smoother when it's hit over the net with 600 hertz processing, I'd have to um, frown with disappointment. <laughs> and and of course the reason they come to this 600 hertz um if i remember the mathematics it's uh, 50 frames per second 12 subfields per frame which equals 600 is that right it's about yep. right yeah yep. so 
basically, it, it, plasma is great for motion, and uh, this 600 hertz uh, malarkey, which Panasonic we're talking about, is inherent with the panels anyway. It does nothing for uh, judder movement or uh, or motion. In so, a way, that's that's the saddest thing, isn't it? Plasma doesn't even need those silly uh, 100 hertz, 200 hertz processing systems, but they're just playing that numbers game because of the the way the LCD market's gone. Yeah, that's probably the most accurate and honest thing I've heard this year. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's you know, video processing is what it is. This is why tellies differ. If you've got really good video processing, you know, uh, motion compensation, um, you know, managing the interlacing and everything else, you get a good smooth picture. Um, you know, when people said, oh, yeah, you've got to have 720p for sport, you know, I'm just not sure anybody mm. says that anymore because it simply just wasn't true. Oh, well, they don't say it anymore yeah. now because 1080p screens are affordable. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's really yeah. happened. Yeah, but it's still a 1080i signal going into it. Unless yeah. you're off, unless you're three quarters of the way up a mountain, um, you, you don't see yeah. a 720p native broadcast because you know everybody shoots in 1080i. Unless they need a very small camera halfway up a mountain, then they shoot in 720p. Well, that's how UK broadcasters do it. Um, you know, watching um, the footy with BBC. Well, the the uh, last World Cup, you know, they showed it in HD, and the picture on an SD set was far superior to anything ITV come out with, and that was purely and simply because they're using better cameras, mm. and they were capturing more of the information. Um, at the end of the day, that's all you want: nice, smooth motion. You know, LCDs can't do that for you know. It's a it's a, it's a technical limitation on technology. And plasmas can. Um, Panasonic built their brand new factory um, on the strength of it, which was brave. But uh, you know, I'm not telling not telling them they don't know how to make TVs. But uh, we'll see. So, guys, do you think with uh, with the latest PR of uh, contrast ratios of five million to one and uh, six hundred <laughs> hertz and two hundred hertz and uh, LED TVs and all the rest, do you think this this marketing jargon? Um, is likely to uh, impact badly on the manufacturers once the general public get up to speed with, with it, it's actually a load of nonsense that they're coming out with? See, consumers thrive on big numbers. They always have done. So up to a point, marketing are doing their job. It's just that they, they can get carried away occasionally and need a slap, like it sounds like Samsung have just had. Um, <laughs> you, 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 you can't carry on dreaming up numbers, you know, I mean, we all know that a very good contrast ratio in your average front room with the with the curtains shut and the windows off is a couple of hundred to one. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, when people say, it's, oh, it's 50,000 to one native, yeah, sure, it probably is, or, you know, in a, in a lab somewhere. But, <laughs> you know, if they were honest and say to people, well, you know, my contrast ratio is better than your contrast ratio because it's a better TV. Um, will the customer actually really worry about one number being bigger than the other? And the answer, unfortunately, is yes, they do. They look in the spec sheets and come armed with them. You know, we've all been to these um, consumer shows, you know, what Hi-Fi and the Bristol Sound and Vision and things like this, and people are clutching the specs of everything they think they're going to buy. And the one with the biggest number normally gets the vote. Um, whether it's a better telly or not, you know, half the time it might not be. But um, yeah, num- big bigger numbers sell more TVs, and um, a lot of the public 
wouldn't know any different. And once they bought the TV, no amount of telling them will make any difference. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, to their credit, actually, if you look at Samsung's latest um, <clears throat> uh, specifications for their LCDs and plasmas, and I think their so-called LED TVs as well, they've stopped quoting numbers for contrast ratio, and they just—I think now they're just using a phrase like mega contrast or something like that. Oh well, it's probably uses less ink than all them zeros. <laughs> yeah, um, Neil, do you think um, with all this PR and everything else, it, it's impossible now for a consumer who's maybe not as into this technology as as obviously we guys are? Um, but even Joe blogs on the street, do you think it's just confusing him too much? Oh, I think it does confuse him. I mean, we all, I'm sure, get asked by friends and family, you know, what TV should I buy? What should I look for? And to be honest with you, half the time I even find it hard to tell people what they should be looking out for in a TV. So uh, if if I find it tricky uh, to cut through all the crap that you see, I don't even like to think how hard it is for your average man in the street to be buying one. Yeah. So um, maybe the PR guys want to stop going for the bigger number. And uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but Optoma have impressed me in the last month or so because they're releasing some new projectors and they're actually claiming their, what the ANSI contrast performance is, and they're being very realistic about it. Really, that's where manufacturers should be going, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Won't get no argument from me with that. No debate. So <clears throat> on that, that PR bombshell, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a couple of seconds. For up-to-the-minute AV discussion and hardware reviews, visit avforums.com. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. Okay, so uh, welcome back, and uh, we're going to start with some bad news. Um, if you haven't been following things on the forums, uh, the most anticipated, or certainly one of the most anticipated Blu-ray players, uh, the Oppo BDP831, is postponed indefinitely and will not be coming to the UK shores anytime soon. Guys, it was a bit of a shocker when uh, that was announced yesterday. Most of all, because they already sent review samples out, um, and uh, there are people in the forums who have been saying, you know, quite rightly, it's, it's, it's quite surprising that um, uh, they would go, you know, to that extent, they'd go that far and then suddenly pull the plug in the thing. Yeah, I must admit, um, when I read that uh, yesterday, I thought, hmm, I wonder why that is. And then I thought to myself, you know, whilst cosily opening the box of my 83 model, um, I thought, well, they probably sell enough of these. And uh, was there a market for a, a UK-specific brand when people were quite happy to buy the 83 model and, if necessary, modify it for multi-region playback? Um, it didn't look particularly difficult. And... Uh, whilst I'm sure they can't officially sanction such things. It's been going on since the first DVD player hit our shores and I saw no reason for it to put me off buying one. And you just have to wonder how many people have already bought the 83 model. Has the market already you know, been tapped for that particular model or not? Um, but uh, strange... You know, saying they you know, they wanted to support it across the whole of Europe and things like that and language barriers, but... Was that really a problem for the UK? Um, it's a question I'd ask. Yeah, and uh, Neil, uh, one area that I didn't think about, but obviously you can tell us about, is uh, the custom install market. It seemed to be that this was seen as uh, a very handy machine uh, to have in that uh, domain. Well, believe it or not, um, every dealer that we speak to, it's always one of the first questions they ask. 
is what Blu-ray player should I be specifying this week? <laughs> um, and we were all looking at that one because, well, it's one of the few that actually works pretty reliably. Um, it's gone through all the beta testing and all that type of stuff. Uh, and, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty annoying <laughs> that, they've, uh, that they've dropped it in this way. You know, I'm wondering about the CR market, whether they would just continue to buy the 83 model and um, have it suitably uh, um, modified inside so it will play anything they put into it. Well, one of the things I would say is that Oppo is a very unknown brand in the CI market simply because of the sales model that they have. Uh, and for me, that's mm-hmm. an absolutely crying shame because it's a player that could perfectly, perfectly fit into the installation market. It does so many things right, just what uh, the CI dealers are looking for. Um, and, well, unfortunately, they never really had a chance to sell it. And now they're definitely going to get the ch- not going to get the chance to sell it so yeah, it's uh it's a bit of a pain but there you go um, could you see him buying the u.s version and having them modified for multi-region well maybe but you get warranty issues and all that type of stuff she's mm, true when you're installing these things for a living uh, the warranty is even more important than mm. when you're just buying it as a consumer you don't want to be left uh, supporting something like that yourself as we all know, consumer electronics have a tendency to break down, and <laughs> since you make so little money on them anyway, uh, it's going to be uh, quite an upsetting situation for anyone who's been selling these players if they were to start breaking down. I don't think they've been in use long enough, to be honest with you, that we can get a feel for how reliable they are. So I, I would see it as a pretty risky strategy for any installer to be just slamming those things in just now. So that was uh, a bit of bad news. Um, and also, if you want to have... Uh, DVD audio and uh, SACD playback in the same machine. Now the cheapest option is eighteen hundred pounds. Um, that's quite a, quite a jump from the four hundred and fifty that the Oppo was going to come in at. But from the consumer's point of view, though, I mean, it's 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 not really that hard to get hold of the US version, is it? So I, I, do you think it's fair to say the cheapest uh, one is eighteen hundred pounds? Yes, um, but also it's not that big a problem because so people. Ha- so few people have SACDs at this minute in time. Mm. Yeah, I can see a certain uh, German CEO of a well-known um, uh, AV maker who has a, a Formula One background smiling at this point because about seven years ago we were all banging on about his AV receiver having SACD support and I bet he's sitting there killing himself now where I'm having to admit that um, I actually had to pull out two cupboards before I found an SACD to try with this Oppo player. <laughs> so uh, uh, the lack of SACD support is not going to bother anybody these days. Um, can you still buy the damn things? Did, they, did Oppo not ship the player with a uh, uh, sampler disc? I know yes, that's I yeah. I, I, I was going to say, uh, the latest issue of Hi-Fi News and Record Review indeed has several pages of SACD uh, review. So there is still a market for SACD, so we shouldn't be too dismissive there. Um, no, I always I, thought it was a great system. Well, mm. in my opinion, anyone who's that serious, to be honest with you, to be buying um, specialist audiophile recordings on SACD probably doesn't mind buying a dedicated SACD player um, and is perfectly happy with a £200 video device, as long as the audio is okay. So mm. I really don't see that it's that big a deal for them, for, for most people. 
Okay, so let's move things on and let's have a quick look at the Blu-ray market because things have moved uh, in the last sort of four months <laughs> since we were uh, uh, last discussing this and lots of new models coming out, lots of budget models. I think we're going to, before Christmas, going to see one that's under £100. Um, so, so There's one store has been selling an LG player for ninety nine ninety nine. Okay, so there we go. So it's we, happened. So it's happened already. So... Um, the, the market's moving on. Blu-ray discs are definitely getting cheaper as well. If you just have to look in the, uh, the large supermarkets, and that seems to be the case. Uh, lots of deals out there as well online. Um, so they're now in line with what DVD pricing was maybe two or three years ago, guys. Um, it looks like this is make or break this this quarter for Blu-ray. Yeah, I must admit, I noticed that in my local supermarket the other day when I was piling through all the latest DVD releases, and I looked at the DVD for what was it um, nine ninety nine, and looked at the Blu-ray for thirteen ninety nine, and I thought, oh, I have the Blu-ray. Um, you know, it, it had it also this particular one had the DVD and the digital copy in the in the box as well so i was buying a blu-ray a dvd and a digital copy um for four quid more than just the basic dvd so i thought all right sold um, that's exactly what the market needed um the days of hmv flogging them for 27 quid each are hopefully <laughs> a long long over uh, hmm. i don't think that blu-ray will ever uh, have the same impact as dvd has done i think that it's the difference between being something of a a disappointment and just okay if things go pretty well for them uh, this quarter. So there are a lot of people who've bet a lot of money um, on Blu-ray and, well, one good quarter does not make up for all the disappointment, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's move on to the players and uh, something that that we've been saying for a long time, guys, is is basically in in video terms um, there there shouldn't be that much of a difference between all the different players from the very high end to uh, the mid-level range. Um, and that seems to have been borne out by some uh, enthusiasts on the forums uh, who have done two shootouts now, and uh, they did take on the uh, advice of doing that blind. And some interesting results there, guys. Um, uh, interesting, not not surprising at all, not to sound smug, but I've been saying this from day zero. Um Blu-ray is the first uh, format we've had where there is there is the smallest number of logical reasons why there should be any difference or any tangible difference between the output of the players. With DVD, we had um, uh, when you look back in it, the first DVD players connected to um, four by three as well as sixty by nine analog CRTs. You know, whereas now we have a format that is designed for 1080p twenty four displays. The output of the, um, at least of the ABC and VC1 decoding, which is used on most discs, is bit accurate. So any differences between the players hinges on whether or not there's funny business going on post-decoding. And uh, I think yeah, the fact that uh, the, the, the blind shootout results were about as random as you could possibly hope for uh, just proved that, you know, nothing's going on. And uh, Neil, are you still using the PS3? Uh, I still use PS3, Phil, absolutely. Um, I have to say that uh, Graham and I, every day, come across uh, many, many different types of Blu-ray player. Uh, And still, I I can tell people I was on a site the other day with a very, very expensive TV and a very, very, very expensive Blu-ray player. 
Mm-hmm. And I wailed, oh, for a PS3 at this minute in time. It's the Simply speed, because, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the speed and the screwed up weird video processing and <laughs> odd modes that were getting applied that you couldn't bypass and then you had mm-hmm. to try and find which mode was the least odd before you did the calibration. Um, it, it really just it left me very nonplussed, tired and annoyed the, with the, the, thing that, of the, system. the thing that surprises me the most is that the, uh, a lot of the high-end players are using uh, 1080i-centric video processing. They decode 24... Discs are authored and encoded purely as 24p. They, for some reason, they, um, they decode that as 1080i-16, do cadence detection on it. Uh, it's, it's just... It, it's like... Um, it's like that. What was that car advert with all the, you know, the Rube Goldberg device, the the the, the ball running down the slope and hitting the the yeah 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 no, the yeah it's it's, it's it's just LV. total over total yeah. over engineering, um and I think I think a lot of the in the you know the engineer world uh, the engineering world uh, maybe someone else maybe someone here can uh, tell me if this is true or not uh, interlaced. Uh, thinking uh, is just so inherent that it, it makes sense for, th- for them to design a player that way, even although it's not the, the most logical way of doing it. I was going to say, I'm, I'm not even sure you can, you can say that. I, I just don't think there's an excuse at this minute in time. Graham's going to come up with a different explanation, I can tell you already, but f- for me, I'm with you, uh, David, I'd I find it very annoying to see these things. Just give me back the pure mode and let me be done with it. Um, I was actually on site with Neil to witness this and um, it was a very, very frustrating afternoon trying to get the best out of this particular player and the best out of the screen, which we both know both items were you know, supposed to be at the top of their game. And, um, you know... I've always been a an advocate of a PlayStation 3 and I still have no reason not to recommend them for use apart from controlling the damn things in a, C, in a CI environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're quick to load, you plug them in, they always work. Um, they're not the quietest thing on God's earth. But um, I, you know, I was just uh, going to cut in there actually. Um, just yesterday we on AV Forums we published a review of the new PS3 Slim and uh, if the PS3 was a good Blu-ray player already, I mean the quality is the same obviously but if the, the PS3 was a good pl- Blu-ray player already, it's excellent now. The, the Slim version is it's less ugly to look at for a start, it's quieter and it can bitstream HD audio now. There's even more reason to go with it. Alright, yes, the bitstreaming of HD audio, cool. It's in there now. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming. Is that likely to be a firmware update for the old PS3, it's or is not, it a hardware actually, thing? It was a hardware limitation with, I think, the chip they were using for the HDMI output. Okay. I, I can't tell you the exact reason. I've not like, cracked one open, and uh, but you know, the new one does it. Yeah, I must admit, um, with with the Oppo, I, I was amazed at how quickly the disc loaded and was ready to play. It yeah. was almost PlayStation Three territory. Blimey. You know, because I've sat there and waited, you know, for a cup of tea to boil when a couple of the other players, no names, but, um, you know, well-known jobs at a reasonable price, mm-hmm. um, just uh, just were just whirring away to themselves for what seemed like an eternity. 
But, um, you know, so if, if two manufacturers can now make a player that loads a Blu-ray disc relatively quickly and chapter skipping and stuff like that seems to be nigh on instant, mm-hmm. why can't all the others? Because like you say, the picture quality um, is quite difficult to uh, you know, say one's better than the other. So why not go on how quickly they load, how quickly you can swap from chapter to chapter and how easy they are to use? Yeah, those are the real the real differentiators. The the thing I think that's slowing everything down is uh, the BDA's adoption of Java. Um, if you look at the um, uh, PS3 and the Oppo, actually, they both take about the exact same time to load a disc Basically, if you're a consumer nowadays and, and you're looking at high-definition playback on disc from Blu-ray, um, in terms of video quality anyway, uh, there's not a lot to choose between the players. Um, would that be a fair assessment, Grim? Yeah, I think it would be, especially with Blu-ray discs. I mean, there still seems to be a fair bit of difference if they're asked to play back DVDs. Um, and I'm not sure the reason for that, because DVD playback surely by now should be down to its final chipset and um, performance should be the same from those as well. Um, if you're going to use them as a CD player, then they still vary. As I must admit, a PlayStation is not the world's best CD player. Um, yeah, it can be bettered by you know, your five and six hundred quid bracket. But if you're spending five hundred quid on a, a Blu-ray player that plays DVDs, plays CDs, um, I, you know, unless there's a compelling reason for it, I don't really see the point in spending eighteen hundred quid. Um, having said that, uh, I'm about to run. Uh, a series of demos and tests with a very expensive Blu-ray player, which um, I'm assuming will have um, all sorts of bells and whistles in it so I can get an absolutely spot-on picture from a calibration point of view. Mm. And to be honest with you, it's the feature set that's probably going to make the difference these days. Build quality, certainly. You know, these things, you know, people expect to get a reasonable life out of them. And from a CI point of view, you know, controlling of them and... um, you know, the speed they load and things like that are also considerations. But for purely picture quality, um, I'm sure David and Neil probably agree, there isn't too much in it these days. And uh, David, I mean, you have most of the new players coming through in the next few months. You've got a few of them already. Um, I guess it it's basically comes down to DVD playback and uh, the feature sets that these players come with. That's right. I mean, they're, they're spoiled for choice, really. There's, I, I think the only um, Blu-ray disc player that I've reviewed at AV Forms that hasn't had a highly recommended or a recommendation was actually a high-end Sony player that um, did all this roundabout processing, which ended up being detrimental to the picture. Uh, there's, I've got new players from uh, Pioneer and LG here, and um, uh, obviously we'll be doing full reviews on them, but they both play Blu-ray fine, to the best of my knowledge right now anyway, and they both play DVD fine as well. So uh, um, uh, unless you really want a player with uh, you know some complex uh, gamma control on it, which could be useful, um, there, I just see no reason whatsoever to, uh, to spend uh, four figures in a player. And uh, one of the, the technologies that certainly interested you when you reviewed the, the high-end player, and it's one of the players that hopefully we're going to have in in the next week or so, is the S760 from Sony, which has the super bit mapping. That's right. They have this. Uh, this is um, If you look at the uh, reviews of players we've done right now, um, despite me singing their praises, they've all scored, um, uh, the, the highest of players scored is excellent for video quality, and it's probably best to explain that. Um 
I took the view from a scoring point of view that for to get reference on um, uh, 1080p 24 picture quality had to you know had to go above and beyond. And uh, Sony have a technology which um, it detects uh, the um, gradations in 8-bit video that become. Um, I should explain it from the mastering point of view. The the master tapes that are used for uh, production of blurry disc usually are at uh, 10 bit, and uh, all the video codecs on uh, uh, blurry are 8 bit centric. So uh, from that, if that conversion from 10 to 8 bit is um, if it's not done with you know absolute care, then you're going to get stair stepping in um, uh, areas of gradation. Uh, unless you know they've gone to, I, I, I basically went uh, like above and beyond, and uh, mastering was a ratatouille. They actually used a lot of uh, very complex dithering technology um, during the production of that to avoid that happening. Uh, this uh, Sony technology actually does that in the player, so it can take uh, a source that suffered from that problem, that that banding problem, and basically clean it up. Uh, and uh, it was in the uh, the ES series player, and it impressed me there. But unfortunately, that player had other problems with it as well. So you know, it, it didn't get the the uh, reference status for video quality. But um, there, um, it's now coming downstream onto the uh, the uh, cheaper models as well, the cheaper Sony players as well. So um, I'm curious to see what what they can do with it there. And but and but, but with, with that said, I should actually say just before I let you talk again, it's the difference is really subtle. I mean, uh, it really, it really is just the final icing on the cake. The final icing on the cake. That the players are already scoring excellent for video quality. They, um, I could happily live with any of them. And Graham, I guess from a technical point of view, the the, the fairest thing to say here is that um, all video is eight bit. It, it's likely to be that for the next decade <laughs> at least. Um, so any technology that that tries to uh, improve on the bit rate, improve on color gradation. So they can get back towards the ten bit masters that they're using has to be a welcome feature. If it's done properly, as David well knows, um you can get a better result. But it's not night and day. It is subtle and if you do it for a living, you'll notice it. Any improvement they can make to get closer to um what was on the original master has to be applauded. But as David quite rightly says, the difference is subtle. It is not a night and day improvement that, um, well, some manufacturers have been advertising and promising. It's the same argument as the XY colour and deep colour and all this stuff. Um, it's not present on the disc. So anybody that says it's a night and day difference um, was uh, had something else going on in the chain if they had, did know it's a night and day difference or was just um, a bit of marketing hype. But, um, you know, I'm not suggesting it's not a bad thing to do. Uh, you know any improvement in the processing to get as close to the original that in the mastering house wants you to see has to be applauded and the closer you get to that the better um i'm all in favor of that but uh, it's going to be subtle um there are no huge steps to be made in picture quality from a blu-ray these days um it's good out of the box um, it had a few bugs and rough edges that have largely been knocked off, and um, the processing is the last um, icing on the cake. Um, what comes along next is God only knows, but uh, um, I'll stick with Blu-ray for another couple of years, I reckon. The other thing uh, I was going to say in there as well, um, uh, Sony has actually taken this uh, smoothing and uh, super bit mapping technology, and uh, their uh, authoring and mastering facility in Japan is actually uh, basically building that into the discs now. 
So uh, they're, 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 they're dithering, uh, they're, they're doing that dithering during the encoding process. So, you know, any player will benefit from that. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, um, so it wipes, it, it's kind of funny, I guess. That's, that's what happens when you have a company as big as Sony. One hand is wiping out the, the advantages that the other is uh, trying to sell you in a high-end machine. That's yeah, fair enough, I suppose. Tis yeah. business after all. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other so, thing is with um, with um, it, it's actually it's going to be most benefit on uh, CG content and animation, um, where you would get large areas of flat color with subtle gradations that would you know fall foul to that banding anyway. With live action content, unless it's really really heavily stylized, I can't think of any uh, many examples that would really show it up. I can see a lot of people smiling now when all of a sudden they've realised it's not their plasma screen that was showing these, it was the actual material in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I wish I had a pound for every time I've tried to argue that one as well. Uh, but there you well, go. <laughs> I think the bottom line is uh, just just buy some films for crying out loud. That's the whole point. <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. And that that is a great point, David. It's It's one of these points that I think... Um, especially us that make a living from, from doing what we do, uh, we tend to forget that it's about sitting down and, and watching <laughs> movies now and again. So there, you've heard it from David, uh, guys and gals. Go get yourself some movies, sit down and enjoy your systems. Yeah, we, we've Absolutely. got the best. Sony's, Sony's um, I think it's Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, their US marketing uh, says it all. The best, I think it's, don't quote me in it, the best way to watch movies at home ever. And that's that is it, that's what Blurry is, and it, it's we, we we should be celebrating the fact that you can buy a ninety nine pound player and basically get as good as you're going to get from it. You know, please if you if you've got money to spend, improve your room, buy a better projector, buy an anamorphic lens, buy more films. The last one of the last things I can be thinking of that you should you should be wanting to replace is the Blu-ray player. Yeah, very good point there, and uh, glad to see you mentioned the room because that's something that. Um, People, they forget straight away exactly that, you know, the room has the biggest influence, doesn't it, Graham? And that's the thing to get sorted first. Yeah, uh, without a good room, um, everything else you throw into it normally costs you far more and you still wonder how good it would be if you started off with a decent room. Uh, Audio especially and obviously video um, to around the same um, performance level these days you can do an awful lot to a room to improve the video and um, you know if you bear that in mind with your audio performance as well you end up with something that is way way better than any cinema or multiplex you've ever been to um, grading rooms and um, you know show theatres aside um, you know your home your home can be an excellent excellent place to watch a film and uh, well I like it, so uh, <laughs> why I'm, not? I'm in a I'm in a, a white room with a quite a reflective white ceiling right now, and I'm in the the process of blacking it out. Um, so the 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 improvements that's making for a projector, are, you know, they're they're not subtle in the slightest. Yeah, I mean, we find a lot of people now that are actually converting a room in the house to a dedicated cinema. They don't have to be massive, but because they're dedicated to the task, you can actually make massive improvements just by changing the colours of the walls. And, Mm. you know, as you you rightly know, I mean, all right, even people that have got, um, you know, their projectors in their front rooms, careful use of colour and picking the right equipment and, you know, 
even even a blackout blind and some solid doors instead of glass doors let the light through make massive differences to the picture and they're all basically i mean how much is a tin of you know slightly less white dulux paint it's the same price as a tin of white paint you know and, and it makes a massive difference if you can get past the wife of course i mean i'm not really tried her on painting the ceiling black yet but i've got a funny feeling i know what the answer would be but, hey whatever I live in hope that I earn enough money to buy a house where I can have a basement cinema. So there you go. That's uh, what I'm striving for before I retire. Okay, well, uh, let's end things there because uh, time has caught up with us again for another month. Um, Go enjoy your films, people, and uh, we'll see you again next month. All I need to do is thank David McKenzie, uh, Graham Goodburn and Neil Davidson for their assistance with the podcast this month. We'll be back again next month, so please tune in. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening. And we'll see you again. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton. And the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.